if you have your pew Bibles and you do, Philippians 1, I will read there, but Philippians 1, I'm going to start at verse 3. And so I'll give you time to do that to get there. But before we do that, I just wanted to give a little background. I always find that it's helpful when we do these readings that we see that they're not just these like doctrinal documents with no context. And that often is how we read it, or we don't have the context, we don't know the context, and we, we miss all of the kind of heart that's behind it. And this is a passage that has a lot of heart. So who wrote this book? Anybody know? Paul, right. And do you know who he wrote it to? To the Philippians. That's right. He wrote it to the church in Philippi. Oh, and there it is. See that red dot that that arrow is pointing to? That's a church in Philippi. That's in Macedonia at the time. Macedonia, I think, I think it's in Greece now. And it is a Roman colony. As a matter of fact, it was destroyed and rebuilt just a few decades before the birth of Jesus. Its official Latin name is Colonia Julia Augusta Philippensis, right? So you hear the kind of Julia and the Augusta, all those kind of imperial names. This is a place where Roman soldiers would go to retire. They would be given farmland. This was a common practice. And it was a Roman colony. Latin was a major language, of course, being in this kind of Macedonia Greek area. They did speak Greek, and Paul wrote this in Greek. But it was a place that had heavy Roman presence, which is really interesting because Paul, when he writes this letter, as he does with a few of his letters, is in prison and in a Roman prison. So it creates this really interesting dynamic. Paul is in a Roman prison. He even talks about this kind of in, depending on how you read it, in kind of like covert ways, like I have infiltrated the Praetoria, which is like the the home of where the Romans are. Now he sends greetings from the Praetoria, but it gives you this sense of, I have, you know, I'm inside. He's not really inside though. He he says he's inside and this is strategic because then he can spread the gospel about this other king, Jesus, right? But he's actually imprisoned. There's something about the way that Paul views the world and the stories that he tells that helps him to see his circumstances in different ways than maybe other people would see it. Like the Roman Empire would say, well, no, you're a prisoner and you're totally in our power. Speak your gospel, but you have no power. We're the ones with power. Paul doesn't see it that way. But anyway, so Paul's in prison. We don't know where Paul is. I should say that we may think that since this is a Roman province that Paul is in Philippi, he's not going to write a letter to the Philippians while he's in Philippi because they could probably come and see him. People do apparently go to see Paul while he's in prison. There's a lot of different ideas about where he might be. Rome is probably the most accepted. He's probably in Rome, in Ephesus or other places. But I tend to think it's in Rome, which makes it all the more interesting. He's talking about all these things. He talks about our citizenship, palituma. This is a Greek word. Everybody say palituma. So I have another Greek word later. This is, this is Greek time with Tim. But you can you know sound smart and impress your friends. This palituma is the citizenship, he actually uses the word polytuista, you act out as citizens of God's kingdom, right? Our citizenship is in heaven, but we act out that kingdom on earth amid this reality. And so Paul's kind of flipping his experience on its head. And he tries to do that with the Philippians as well. This is actually a really wonderful, like joyous, happy letter. Have you ever read Galatians? Yeah, it is not. It's the opposite of Galatians. Galatians just kind of comes in and says, hi, I'm Paul. What are you doing? But Philippians here starts at the passage that I'll read here in a second. It goes in 
right into this beautiful prayer. The hopes that he has, he talks about their past, their present, and moves on to their future. The hope that they have in the day of Christ. Now, the day of Christ, of course, is this phrase that we might find threatening. The day of Christ sounds kind of like the day of judgment, right? Maybe that's just me. And maybe it's because I said it with that voice. But for Paul and for those in Philippians, this is a day to, to hope for, to anticipate with joy. And it is this day, this kind of eschatological, right? This end expectation, this belief that this is the way that the world is structured and this is where we're moving that brings this joy and hope to Paul and changes the way they interact with the world. So I actually, I'm going to invite you. I had you open it up, but well, I want you to read it. So I was going to have you close your eyes and imagine that you're, but I think on a Sunday morning, I don't, though apparently lots of us have had coffee right before this, so you won't fall asleep, but let's read it together and I'll read it and you follow along and just imagine this is Paul and just think about the love and compassion that Paul has here. We tend to think about Paul often as detached, but Paul here is really in love with this community. And a lot of that has to do with the love that he has from God. So we talked about the compassion of God in this as well. So Paul writes, I'll start at the beginning. This is Paul, the apostle. I'm writing to you, the Philippians, grace and peace. I thank my God every time I mention you in my prayers. I am thankful for all of you every time I pray. And it's always a prayer full of joy. I'm glad because of the way you have been my partners in the ministry of the gospel from the time you first believed until now. I'm sure about this. The one who started a good work in you, right? the God who started a good work in you, has started it, will stay with you to complete this job by the day of Christ Jesus. So up until the day of Christ Jesus, God will be working with you. I have good reason to think this way about all of you because I keep you in my heart. You are all my partners in God's grace, both during my time in prison and in the defense and support of the gospel. God is my witness that I feel affection for all of you with the compassion of Christ Jesus. See all this language in my heart, compassion, affection. This is my prayer, that your love might become even more and more rich with knowledge and all kinds of insight. I pray this so that you will be able to decide what really matters. And so you will be sincere and blameless on the day of Christ. I pray that you will then be filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes from Christ Jesus, in order to give glory and praise to God. Just little pictures of ancient uh, Philippi. This is obviously a letter of thanksgiving and joy. There's this word compassion, and the root word there is splankna. Does anybody remember that? Like anybody? I, I preach on that all the time. We got one, of course, my wife. All right, Anne, thank you. All right, splankna, I've talked about this before. It's in the, the Benedictus, which is Zechariah's prayer at the beginning of Luke, and it means your guts, right? And this is in ancient anthropology where all of your feeling is in your emotion. This is the feeling and emotion that Paul has. I mean, he feels this way, even in the midst of imprisonment because of the hope that he has in them and in Jesus. So he ends on the future. He's convinced of hope. Hope is important for him. Dr. King often got a lot of flack for this, for the same idea that he focused too much on hope. James Cone for once, 
Also, eminent people like me have criticized <laughs> for this in the past. Today, I'm not. I'm going to take the exact opposite tack. I think Ta-Nehisi Coates has kind of criticized this notion of the world is all moving towards justice. But this was important for King, this idea of this hope, this way of envisioning the world, the way of thinking the way the world is structured now and where it's going. And James Cone did say to this at one point, this quote, it is to his credit right, that Dr. King never allowed a pietistic faith in the other world, right? It's not a, just a faith in the other world. Never let a pietistic faith in the other world to become a substitute for good judgment in this world. He not only preached sermons about the promised land, right, the hope that we are going to, but he concretized his vision with a political attempt to actualize this hope. For King, that is not a separate thing, this hope that he had. That hope was a necessary tool, a necessary part of envisioning our place within the world and existing for enacting the political change that he thought was necessary. He believed that because we have this hope, we can live into this hope now. It was that hope that moved us forward. And that's why he talked about it. I think Paul has the same sort of hope that gives him when he's in prison, he thinks he is the one that's infiltrating his prison, right? He thinks he is the one that's spreading the gospel. And I think this hope is important. But what it also says something about is our stories. King was not cynical. He didn't just say, we need to have this hope. I need to manufacture this thing. He believed in the resurrection. He believed in the God of justice. He believed in the faithfulness of Jesus. And he believed that the, that the resurrection shows our victory. And that is the reason for our hope, that we trust in that God. And we believe that that God is ultimately moving us forward in whatever way. Now, it, we may not, it may not be progress. And I think that's more the issue. But we have this hope that God ultimately, however it works, whether through the cross or what, will bring things right. God ultimately brings justice. And so this resurrection hope structures the way that we view the world. On a different note, I've been really excited about this new kind of Bible lesson packet that I've been working through with my kids. We're only about two lessons through it. I've read through it a, a bit, uh, but it's really great. It's by Pete Enns. Does anybody know who Pete Enns is? There's a great podcast called The Bible for Normal People. If you ever want to listen to it, I'd recommend it. It's really good. He is an Old Testament professor, was an Old Testament professor. I think he's working as an independent scholar now. But Pete Enns put this thing together. And what I'm so used to in children's curriculum, and maybe it's just my trauma from my short time in evangelicalism, is that the place to start, well, I mean, it could start with creation, right? Because you move one through the other. But I know that I worked at a summer camp. And I worked at a summer camp where my job was to make tallies on a sheet about how many people I've gotten to say the sinner's prayer. And I memorized the Romans road. Does anybody ever, anybody know what the Romans road is? So Romans, Romans road is a series of verses through Paul that work you through your place as a sinner and what it takes to go to heaven. But it's this sort of, not to call out a specific person, but this sort of Kirk Cameron summer camp evangelism that always gave me a bad taste in my mouth. That made me not want to approach my children with the gospel. And I think I realized that secondarily, of course I want my children to hear the gospel, but I don't want that to be their intro. That just so you know, you are terrible, but once you admit it and how terrible you are, then God will love you and you get to go to heaven. This curriculum begins with this story from Luke 15, eight through 10. And 
I don't know if you could tell, this is Noah and Junia as they color. I'll read them the story and they color along with it. And they color these pictures. This is the woman who lost a coin and is searching fervently for it. And what they learn from this story, the first thing that they learn is how much God rejoices over them, how much God loves them, right? And not that I'm like just trying to be hippy-dippy and happy, but I think that is the first story, and it changes the way that they view the world, right? Just like the resurrection, we believe that God is victorious in the resurrection. We believe that firmly from the beginning, our origin story is that God loves us. I feel like it's a lot better than if my kids were drawing pictures of sinners in the hands of an angry God, which was the only thing really related to Christianity that I ever read in high school, because public education, which is fine. I'm not making an apology to get more, necessarily more Bible in the classroom, but this wasn't necessarily a good picture either. All of that points to, obviously, as I've been saying, the importance of stories. So Jaden read Genesis 1 at the beginning today. This can be a rote story. We've probably heard this a million times. We can check out, we know what God does. He creates a whole bunch of stuff. Great, we're at the end. It seems to put humanity in this place where it can be domineering and, and control all of creation. It doesn't, and I don't have enough time to talk about that today, but let's get coffee maybe next week, Sunday, and I'll talk more about it when I don't have a sermon that I'm trying to put on here. But what's important about Genesis 1, and I'll get into it. Well, one, it's in the front of our Bible. So even just in terms of the Christian canon, it's got a pride of place that colors the way that we approach the rest of it. That's really, really common for people like, I'm going to pick up the Bible and they start at chapter one. By the way, that is a terrible way to read the Bible. Like Genesis, okay, you're getting through and then Exodus, all right. And then it's like Leviticus and Numbers. What am I doing? How can I get through this? Wait until you can get second Chronicles. If you can make it that far and you're just reading names forever, I wouldn't recommend it. But it is in the front place of our Bible. And I think that it's there for a reason because that story colors the way that we view God. And why is that important? Well, one, I talked about context with Philippians, right? How important it is to know the context. Well, one thing, I think it's really important to know the context of the way Genesis 1 was written, or at least one way that we understand this context. This passage was written to a specific people in a specific place in a specific time. This was likely, as far as we know, written while the uh, Jewish people were exiled in Babylon. This is literature that is for an exiled people. This is literature, as we'll see, this creation story mimics other creation stories around the time. It turns out all of those other creation stories usually involve legitimating some powerful god that is the patron of some ruling dynasty and explains why they got into power. This story mimics that, but in ways that don't replicate that. It is, seems to me a story that can only be written by people that are being subjugated. And it actually is pretty amazing to me that it does come out this way, that it's not more violent and that it doesn't involve more destruction of all of their enemies, by the way, which all these other kind of creation stories in the ancient Near East are. Uh, doing. I think Paul kind of feels the same that he is writing a story that tells the world differently than the empire that's around him. So we see that creation. It offers a different narrative than the dominant one that's around, one that doesn't justify the societal power. Does anybody know the name of the creation story? I'm asking questions that 
I think I know that the answer is no, but does anybody know the name of the creation story that was predominant in Babylon at the time where they were exiled? Gilgamesh is, yeah, that's the flood narrative. That's, gro that's really good. Everybody heard Enuma Elish? Everybody say Enuma Elish. Good, all right, you're awake. Enuma Elish. And the main god, the main god in the Enuma Elish, his name is Marduk. This is Marduk, the god of the Enuma Elish. Marduk is the grandson of a few a bunch of other gods. There's all of these gods, and this giant war happens. And where does creation come from? This sounds just like Genesis 1, right? It comes from Marduk slaying his grandmother, Tiamat, the goddess of the ocean, and building the land out of all of the different disassembled parts of her body. Sorry, children. It's pretty gruesome and violent. And this is typical. This is Marduk slaying his grandmother, Tiamat. And what this did was it justified, it said, Marduk is in power. Marduk is the god of the Babylonians. This is why we're in power. And this is why the king, who is the, the regent, the image of Marduk, the son of Marduk, should rightfully be in power, not just because of worldly power, but because it is divinely legitimated. Humans themselves were created from one of the gods that lost in the battle. They executed him, enslaved him, and built human beings out of his parts. And why are human beings created in the, in the Enuma Elish? Does anybody know? To have a loving relationship with Marduk? No. Humans are created because gods didn't want to do work, and humans could be created to be their servants and do their work for them. There's this point in the Enuma Elish where all the gods are sitting in, in their kind of heavenly assembly going, praising Marduk. And one of the lines is, Marduk gave us human beings to do all our work. Like, this is one of the reasons they're so excited. Not a wonderful vision of the place of human beings, I guess. But this is typical. Marduk, Baal, why your God is the most powerful. So Genesis 1, as we can see and read, maybe we appreciate it more now. Think back to what Jaden read. It's a little different sounding now, I think. We don't have any of that, right? God doesn't create the land out of slaying his grandmother. Humans aren't there just to serve gods, right? And it doesn't require this unending divine violence. Now, there actually are some pretty interesting chaos -y kind of creation stories later, but it's not the same in the same way. God subdues chaos. But this isn't a scientific document. I, don't, I think I'm preaching to the choir on that one, right? I know that we, as a society, have this kind of, as a society, as a Christian church, have this battle that we're waging against evolution and science. And uh, I know that we're not doing that here so as much. But this is a liturgy. This Genesis 1 is a liturgy. It is meant for a worship service, and it colors the way that we view the world. It changes. It takes these stories of violence and says that's not the origin of who we are. This is not the God we serve. This is not the structure of the universe. And that's really what it does. It tells us what the structure of the universe is. It is a story written in exile, an alternate vision of the world, an anti-imperial vision of the world, rather than violence. And I would say what we have is a very non-violent God. I say that in the Mennonite church because, again, singing to the choir. But this is the second week of Advent. Does anybody know what the, the theme of the second week of Advent is? Last week was hope. It's peace, right? This is, this is our Sunday. <laughs> I mean, it's everybody's. It's Jesus' Sunday. It's God's Sunday. But, I mean, 
the piece, this is, this is what I think we have in the creation story. And I would argue this, that what we have is this foundational notion of this God of peace. This God of peace structures our world. Even for Paul, when he talks, Paul's moving from creation to new creation. He's moving from peace to peace. He sees peace exemplified in the middle of history in Jesus. Jesus is crucified on the cross, exemplifies God's patience and forbearance and mercy and peace. And that is where we're moving. The structure of history is God's sadness over violence that has come into the world from Cain. Even when we see the flood, God doesn't say, oh, I'm so angry, I'm going to kill them. What he said, if you look there, the emotion that he has is this profound regret. He doesn't know what to do because violence is multiplying unchecked. I'm not trying to say we should then emulate it and create giant floods to get rid of injustice. But actually, it's interesting because the story that we have of God that comes through the Old Testament seems to be that God is kind of learning. Maybe, I don't know, say learning, but God changes his stance. He's, God is, wants there to be peace. He can't handle this unchecked violence that just keeps multiplying. He doesn't know what to do with. Jesus handles this on the cross. But God, after the flood, says, well, I'm not going to do that again. Because it really hasn't changed anything. Now I have Noah and it's going to do the same thing's going to happen. I'm not going to do that again. There has to be something else. He chooses a people. He chooses Abraham. We even see this same sort of thing happen with Moses in the desert. He says, I'm going to destroy them all. And Moses says, don't do it. And part of me is just like, God wasn't really going to do it anyways because he learned that lesson before and doesn't. And this is a description of God as God is merciful and forbearant and faithful, even through all of these things. Is a nonviolent creation. Elohim, the name for God there. Elohim does not battle with gods. He does not battle with violent chaos. This is not the picture of the origins of the world. I don't know what this is. There's trees with legs, but it looked peaceful to me. So I put it up when I looked up creation. And this seems to me, how, whatever it means, more like the creation that we have, the story that we have in Genesis 1. Elohim doesn't create land, again, by slaughtering his grandmother which is the water. Rather, we just see at the beginning, there is nothingness. Not that there's nothing, there's something, but it is nothingness. And it says the spirit of God hovered over the water. And then how does God create? The words there is always let there be. These are in Hebrew, what we call jussives. We call those in other things, jussives as well, but in Hebrew, it's a jussive as well. And this is a real weak command. And and it seems to be, and I think it very likely carries this notion of an invitation, not a command. It's almost as if God calls forth to the water and says, come, bring forth what you really are. It's a call to bring forth order and creation. It's a call to come be into God's peace that God is setting up. And it's creation response. There's no sense of domineering or authoritarianism, at least in the way that I read it. But God says, let this happen. And it's as if that form responds as, you know what, God, that's what we've always wanted to be. We've always wanted to be in that form. It seems that creation participates in their own creation. It says, earth brings forth life. Now, of course, we can think, well, yeah, that makes sense. We say stuff like that all the time. Earth brings forth life, but we know that God really did it. I wonder if people that read this would not think that it really is earth bringing forth life. Or God says, let the sea 
team forth with creatures. It seems the sea is the subject doing the action. The sea does it. Part of me wonders when we have this interesting phrase, well, let us create them in our image, that God is talking to the rest of creation, right? that that's the hour. I know that because we don't know what to do with that anyways. It's like just as good as any other. <laughs> I know Trinity or whatever, but I don't think anybody at Babylon was thinking about the Trinity at that time. So that, that works as well. But it is this participation, this calling forth, right? This come be a part of this thing. And this is all before violence comes in. And the repeated refrain, which you do not get in the Enuma Elish, when Marduk is setting up humans to be their, you know, I don't know, why do you think, why do gods need human servants? I don't know what would humans do. But anyways, the continual refrain throughout every single day, God created all of these things. He said, wow, this is good. He doesn't say this is useful for me. He doesn't say I'm going to subdue it, whatever. We'll again, talk about that next week over coffee. But he sees it and it is intrinsically good in itself. He looks at it and says, it is good. He looks at human beings and says, you are good. And then he looks at all of creation. He says, it is very good. And as a side note, human beings are not, I know that there's this interesting role, and we'll talk about this in a second, that they have, but they are also, we are also fellow creatures, which is an important thing to think about. Not a separate thing that then dominates creation. We are fellow creatures. But Elohim does not create the world out of an incidental product of violence. God has joy in it all. God sees it and has joy in it all. And so the story of Israel and Babylon in exile is so vastly different and calls into question this violent, dominating cosmology violent, dominating question of the world. And they don't do it because they're like, well, we're going to question that. They do it because that's what they believe the structure of the world is. That this is the God that we serve. And this is the order of the world as it is. And so I think that's the same with Paul. Again, Paul's story in Philippians is set in the same way. He doesn't make up these stories about infiltrating the Praetorian Guard or being so happy while still being in prison because he gets to spread the gospel, but because he believes this is who God is and because he believes he sees that spirit in the community. He knows he holds the Philippians in his heart. He says wonderful things about their faithfulness and he knows that the spirit that binds them together is a sign of the way that the world really is and the structure of God. So that story, the Genesis story goes on to say that God creates human beings in God's image, in God's image. Again, vastly different than the, the Marduk story. And so something about this is our story. Now we are created in, in this God's image. All of us are created in this God's image, this God that is profoundly grieved over the violence that's multiplying in the world. This God that seeks to structure the world in peace, shalom, justice, right? This God that shows infinite mercy and compassion. And there's something about that image that we are created in. Often this is viewed as some sort of like domineering, right? Since the Renaissance, it's viewed, well, we're like little gods. God set us to be God, set us up to be God so we can use creation for whatever we want. Francis Bacon was really famous for this later to say, this is what this means, that we are set up to utilize creation for the benefit of human beings. And so all of this is anthropological. 
What I mean is all of this puts human beings in the center, but that's not what this story does. Human beings are not in the center. Though they are an important place, God is in the center. It's theological, right? God is in the center. And so all of this creation is for the purpose of God's praise and worship in one point, but because God loves it. That's it, because of the joy that God wants to share with that creation. And that's where we are. That's why, again, that Peter ends the thing with, with my, uh, my kids. I hope Noah recognized her drawing. But that, that is so powerful for me because I think that that is important that we understand that it's this God that is primary. So we are created in God's image. One thing that helps us understand what this means, because people, there's, I'm sure you've heard different ways of understanding what that means. Like it's because we have reason or because we have, because we're set up to be God's uh, own kings, like I said. But one thing that's really interesting, when we turn to Genesis 5, 3, we have this. It's the only other place, by the way, the image of God does not appear a lot in scripture. But one other place it does is a few chapters later, after the Cain and Abel incident, Adam and Eve have another son named Seth. And at the beginning of five, it talks about the order of creation, how God created human beings in his image, in her image. And then it moves into chapter five, three, and it gives us sort of an analog for what's going on. It says, when Adam had lived 130 years, which was not a long time for the way people were living back then, 130 years, he became the father of a son in his likeness, according to his image, same words. He named him Seth. Same words that we are created in God's image. Now, it isn't that Seth is somehow like the vice regent for Adam when he's gone, or right, or some king, some Adam godly form or something, whatever, whatever our, our stories are about what it means for us to be in God's image. It's that Seth is Adam's son. And this is a metaphor, right? We say in the image, it's because the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Human beings share those things in common, right? With our children, but they may, the first thing we think of is well, they, people look alike, but beyond that, they also act alike. They learn, they're nurtured. There is a connection. And there is something about how we are created in God's image that we have that connection with God. We have that connection. What is that connection? Well, I think that at least part of it, we resemble this, this God, or at least we are called to resemble this God, or at least when we are shining and representing that image, we are in our fullness representing this God and not Marduk, right? We represent this God who mourns violence, not Marduk who establishes the world on it. This is our peace. In the distinctive description we have of God in Exodus, and this is one that we see throughout echoed throughout the Torah and throughout the prophets, always goes back to, this is a paradigmatic phrase, but we see this in Exodus 34, 6. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And this is the God we serve, God that is merciful, God that is gracious, that is slow to anger. I'm working on that abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and truth. That is the God that we serve. Jesus says something similar in the Sermon on the Plain. In Luke, by the way, Jesus' genealogy is really interesting. It goes back, it goes from Jesus back, it goes all the way back to Adam, 
It's the only genealogy that does this. And what does he call Adam? It says, it says, all of these people are son of this, son of this, son of this. Adam, son of God. I have a lot of things that I think are going on there. One of the things I think is that Jesus, what Luke is doing, saying Jesus is coming to represent and reform that image in human beings. That through Jesus, we are able to receive that image again. Not that it was lost, but that what that image is, is reflecting this God that we serve. The God that was from the beginning of creation, moving us to new creation, that we are a new creation. And then the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus says this specifically. If you love your enemies, if you pray for those who curse you, right? If you give to others without expecting a return, then you will be children of God. When we reflect those realities of God, that is what we are called to, what we are always meant to do. That is where our peace is and our hope is. Says, and then further, the, the climax, in, it's kind of in the middle, but the climax of this whole section of the sermon, and we see this also something similar in Matthew. In Matthew, it says, be perfect as God is perfect. But I think what Matthew is getting at is in terms of this kind of perfection of love. What Luke says is be compassionate. And compassion isn't a feeling, by the way, for Luke. It is a way that we act in the world. You have compassion with people. You show mercy is not something you feel, it's something you do. And so this is the image. God created us to be counterparts with the capacity to love, to show compassion, to be compassionate, and to have relationship with God. Not to be servants of Marduk. This is Paul. Paul, I'm, I promise that it connects back to Paul. I've been making these, these tiny connections. And actually, it's probably nothing more than I've said already. But for Paul, Paul himself is living in between two creation stories. He talks to the Philippians about the creation that they are becoming. And the hope is that the creation will be the fulfillment and the end of violence that was anticipated and expected at this creation. So really what Paul is, is in between two stories. And in between two stories, as I said, we have Jesus who reveals the God at both places and puts us on this trajectory to new creation. So Paul calls us forth into this new creation. Paul has hope because he believes that it is accomplished. And Paul can sit in an imperial jail because he believes that the world is structured according to God's justice and that God will be victorious despite the way that people think that power is played out. Because Jesus, in being victorious over the cross, the methods of execution of the empire, right, Jesus One, who has power? Jesus has power. And Jesus has that power not in destroying people, right? He has that power in God's patience and God's faithfulness and mercy. He prays for forgiveness from the cross and he is raised for the same thing. It says in in Acts, Jesus was raised from the dead for the forgiveness of sins, right? What that means is Jesus as a king was not raised to come and destroy all of his enemies. Like, look, You rejected me, now I've been raised to kill you all. No, it says he's been raised to still give you forgiveness, right? Because what we're doing here is new creation. We're binding all things together. All things in heaven and earth are united together in God's peace. And we are seeking to be found and be one in that peace. So this is his source of optimism. This is why he has so much love. And because of the compassion and love that he sees 
as a reflection of, of that God in the Philippians. Paul sees the world differently because of that hope. And so this is where we are, bringing it home. This is where we are uh, called on Advent. We're called on Advent, right? We are in expectation and waiting. Maybe you can see yourself at different points. Maybe this expectation and waiting, we are the tohu v'bohu, right? The formless void, the nothingness that is something but is nothing. We are that, and we are just waiting for God to say, let PMC come forth, right? Let each of you come forth. And we say, yes, God, that is what we've always wanted to be. That's what we've always meant to be. And so that's where we are in Advent. And that's the hope that we had from last week. That's the peace that we talk about from this week that we expect to be in. And so... Right. So that's where I think the peace. So I didn't mention peace enough, I think, for a peace candle Sunday at a Mennonite church, but that's the point. And then so my hope is that we all can trust in this vision as well, that we can structure our world by this vision. This is Paul, by the way, it is jail cell. It's a famous painting by Rembrandt. I don't like that sword in there again to talk about peace, but it's a really nice painting. So I like the contemplation on Paul's face anyways. I think that's the sort of his, one of his captors, not his own. So the takeaway from this, there's a lot of takeaways from this, is that maybe just really broadly, is this the story that you believe structures your world? Do you have trust in this story? Do you see yourself in this advent with that expectation? And how do you nurture that expectation? How do you nurture this expectation of God's work? How do you seek the spirit that calls us forth out of the water? That's a good image for baptism too, right? Right? The spirit that calls us forth out of the water, out of nothingness into creation, into new life. I wanted to pray Paul's prayer for all of you, because I think that as we feel that love and understand that story, that this is a prayer that we can live into and open. This is the last few verses in, in Philippians. Tim to the church. Pasadena Mennonite, I think of you often because of the love that you have for me and because I hold you in my heart. I pray that your love, especially our love together that we share, might become even more and more rich with the understanding and knowledge of God's goodness and joy, the joy that God has over us. I pray this so that you will be able to decide what really matters in this life and so that you will be sincere and blameless on the day of Christ. And I pray that you will be filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes from Jesus Christ in order to give glory and praise to God. May we live lives that are glory and praise to this God who looks at us and just says it is good and loves us for who we are. In Jesus' name, amen.